Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Henry. Hi, I'm Masa. And today we have a very exciting guest, Diana Cohen, who is an NYU alum as well as a Forbes 30 under 30. Um, we're here with Richa, who's going to tell us a little bit more about our guest today. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have Diana here on the episode today. Um, Diana can best be described as the queen of building D2C brands. She has a breadth of experience working at Into the Gloss, which obviously became Glossier, Away, Harry's, Outdoor Voices, and I'm really excited for her to share her marketing expertise with you all today and talk about building her own um, D2C hair care brand, Crown Affair. So hope you all enjoy. With that, let's get started. Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. So glad to be here today with you, Diana. Um, I know the way we typically start is by having our guests um, kind of do a 30-second pitch. This is something we're super familiar with in business school. Um, I know you might not be as familiar with it, but just kind of like 30 to 60 seconds highlight of um, kind of who you are, your career for our listeners. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me first. We're excited you're here. Um, I'm Diana Cohen. I have spent many hours in this building, but not as a Stern uh, student. I went to NYU for my undergrad, and while I was there, I interned at a number of places, mostly in fashion. Um, And my last internship there was at a digital publication called Into the Gloss. I'm a huge fan. Yes, which a lot of us now know as Glossier. That was about seven years ago. Um, And from there, I worked there and have worked in the direct consumer e-commerce landscape for the past seven years. and I'm now launching my own hair care line, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, I've been in New York for 10 years now. Um, and I really love marketing. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Was that 30 seconds? I'm not sure. But okay. <laughs> there was no clock. It, it, it felt right. It felt right. Um, so yeah, a lot, lot to unpack there. I think we'll dive into a lot of that stuff as we, uh, as, as we discussed today. Um, but just I think like right off the bat, you know, what drew you to marketing? Like what about it did you did you particularly like or you know, decide to dedicate a career towards. Yeah. So ironically, I did not study marketing at NYU. I studied art history. Mm -hmm. Um, But part of my undergrad credits, I decided to take a couple of marketing classes. And I took one in this building with a professor named Mark Cohen, who I really liked. I would say half of the class was very like econ driven. It was very like formulas and this is the basics. But we had a speaker come in and speak in the auditorium upstairs here um, named Gary Vanderchuk, mm. who obviously everyone knows well as a marketer today. But at the time, he was actually just running his family's wine business and starting to get into other opportunities and venture. Yeah, this must have been like eight years ago. And I don't know. He just kind of like it, – it was so rooted from storytelling, everything that he was talking about. And even how he grew his family's wine business in terms of, like, grassroots marketing, getting the lists, getting emails, like, doing physical things. It was so – a lot of what he was talking about is a lot of what I do today. And I think a lot of those principles around grassroots marketing haven't changed. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was something about him that felt very not formal and almost crude in a way. But I really enjoyed it. And 
that was when the light bulb really switched for me that, like, marketing was a profession. Mm. Um, you know, you grow up. I grew up in a—my dad was really entrepreneurial, but I grew up in a family where I felt like I, like, had to have a profession or a trade. And I was like, oh, I can just, like, tell stories and make people feel things for a living. Yeah. So, Yeah. That's awesome. That's good. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, as a 30 year old man. Um, I guess, kind of knowing a little bit about your background, I know when you mentioned your first role was with Into the Gloss. Um, how did you kind of land that? What was it like working with Emily Weiss? I'm, I'm like a huge fan. I saw her at an event last week, and I like crawled up to her and was like, "Hi." <laughs> yeah. So um, it's funny. In high school, I got really lucky with meeting amazing people early on in my career. So I grew up in South Florida, and I went to school in Boca Raton. Mm -hmm. And my art history teachers had this awesome son and daughter duo uh, named Courtney and Philip Cranchy. And they had a jewelry company, and I interned for them in high school. And then that was my first internship at NYU. Um, and they just had a really incredible network in the fashion space. They were part of the CFDA. Mm. So all of my future opportunities, whether it was at Tacoon or Valentino and in totally different backgrounds, um, I was just able to connect and, you know, obviously work really hard, but make these relationships early on with people that were doing cool things. So when, um, Emily, I think there were only like six or seven interviews on the site at the time. There was that one with like Lauren Santa Domingo where she's like, I've never washed my hair. It's always blown for me. And it was the first time that I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like for so long to read about or hear about beauty, you'd have to go to like a People Style Watch or a magazine and be like, get Reese Witherspoon's red carpet look. And obviously we're living in a world now where Reese Witherspoon just goes on Instagram and tells that story herself. But mm -hmm. It was so fascinating when the first time I read a couple of the articles and I just – I reached out to her over email and was like, I love what you're doing. I think this is so cool. You totally have no idea who I am, but, like, I just want to work for you in any way. And um, I ended up meeting with her and Nick Axelrod, who was her business partner at the time, who now has his own uh, body care line, which I really love as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I put together – if this doesn't date me, I put together a Tumblr for them that was called <laughs> ITG – assignment.tumblr.com, which has disappeared from the internet. If anyone out there can find it, um, that'd be awesome. And it just kind of showed my aesthetic and my personal take on beauty. And yeah, and I started interning and it was a lot of social media things like Pinterest was really important mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Instagram was just starting up. Um, a lot of editorial production, transcribing interviews, which like you know, to be in the position where you get to hear Emily interview people for two hours and, like, sure, transcribing isn't the most fun thing to do on a Saturday. But, yeah. um, you know, or, like, even our early – there was a photo shoot we did with um, NARS, who was a sponsor at the time, and just, like, being super scrappy and making magic happen. Like, going to Impossible Projects in Chinatown and getting Polaroids and, like, finding an, a model on Instagram who, like, you know, had maybe, like, two, 3,000 followers mm -hmm. and – just shooting stuff and making it look really elevated and telling that story. But, it, you know, maybe that whole shoot cost, like, 1500 bucks, you know, for the whole day. So it was really cool. It was an early way to see an immediate response to an audience and a customer. Um, I didn't have the vocabulary for that at the time. But yeah. looking back, it was it was really special. And, um, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about what happened after. But while I was interning there, I met a woman um, – who I met through the Cranjies actually named Eric Katz, who was starting an e-commerce company. Mm -hmm. And that was when it was actually at Into the Gloss when we like started setting up affiliate links. And you could see like you tell a story about a lipstick and like someone would buy the lipstick. <laughs> and we might make like, you know, 20 cents off that that revenue. But to actually see that happening in real time, I just 
you could feel the power shift changing, mm-hmm. um, which was really cool. And, and honestly, what piqued my interest more in e-commerce as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you're a good storyteller because I remember <laughs> who the Cranchies are. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. like, well, just from, like, yeah. earlier, yeah. like, I, I mean, feel like they're characters yeah. in my head in your life story, and I feel like it's really all coming together. Yeah. Well, they're awesome people. <laughs> Hi, guys. So, so it's, it sounds like, I mean, and I don't want to, like, jump too far ahead here, but, I mean, this is kind of like, the, it feels like the earliest phases of, of, of D2C where you're just you're able to finally kind of like connect with individuals on like a scaled yet personal level. And it, I mean, that, that was that kind of like you were entering the business around when that was all kind of coming, coming together. Yeah, it was exactly that time. And it was, it was honestly so magical. Like it sounds really corny to say, but you know, this was obviously before Glossier existed. It was yeah. still very much an editorial site. Um, and I think Emily and their team knew that eventually it could become something so much bigger um, but yeah, I, I mean, Warby had just launched. I had friends from NYU who were starting to join these other companies, whether it was on the tech side at like Betaworks and Giphy and, or at, you know, at Instagram early days. And it was just, we were starting to see as I graduated, all of the traditional roles that you might have wanted at a Condé Nast, at a fashion house were no longer, they still had the power, but it just was just shifting in a really huge way. And um, you know, I worked it into the gloss a little bit after I graduated, but um, my first job where I wasn't an intern before then was at a company called Spring, mm-hmm. which was a mobile shopping app. And the vision at launch, which was almost, I think, a little over five years ago now, was to create a marketplace and space where we could have all these direct-to-consumer brands that you could shop super seamlessly and and have it be really joyful and fun and a huge part of discovery. And, you know, this was before Instagram wasn't just, like, horrible filters and sunsets. Now it's this massive shopping ecosystem. Um, But, yeah, I mean, Warby had just went live. Outdoor Voices just launched. That was Mm -hmm. the first product I bought on Spring. And, like, I remember getting my Outdoor Voices kit and, like, feeling so excited. And it came with, like, a whole curated set. And I still have those original tote bags that they came in. And, you know, you see the technical apparel for recreation tote all over New York, but these were, like, the first doing things once. And as a customer, right, and, like, the seams were a little off and things were different, but I think what's so cool, and I feel this way about launching a brand now, is, like, you're part of that brand's journey and you're Mm -hmm. excited to give them feedback or wear the product and share it with them and connect with the founder. And it that had never happened before. I never bought something in my life and felt like I could, you know, connect with the founder or a part of their team or... Or anything like that. Um, And, you know, being able to offer these products as Warby and Harry's and a lot of these other direct brands have done at a much more accessible price point is really exciting as well. Um, So, yeah, it was was cool to be a part of that and see these brands grow. And this also kind of sounds like, and maybe we can talk about it more later, like the beginning of the rise of the female entrepreneur in New York. Like you think about Glossier, you think about... um, Ara at yeah. um, era at uh, spring, yeah. or um, I know after that you went to away with yeah. like Jen Rubio and Steph Corey, yeah. um, and it, like this created now. There's so many w- incredible women doing like having unicorn startups in the yeah. city. Um, but I guess is that something that you were feeling and along with the consumer stuff? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I think it really started more on the media side than it did on the consumer side. Um, obviously, Girl Boss and Sophia mm-hmm. Amoroso has transitioned from a retail company to more of a media company. But I I felt it more with like the Refinery29s and the click medias and who what wears because those were the storytellers of like literal stories versus just product. Yeah. Um, so they felt super badass and cool. And, you know, influencers were starting to 
come up in a totally different way and tell their story where the reality is, is, and I mean, people talk about this often, but like venture and consumer is still very male driven. Um, I've been so lucky to be in environments where those, those have always been really positive situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Era, who is, you know, my mentor to this day, she recently, a couple of years ago, started her own company, Seed, which is a symbiotic, probiotic company. And it's so cool to see her do that on her own now, too. Um, she had a couple male partners, but her leadership, you know, I, I've never really, I mean, it sounds really silly. Every All leaders are leaders in their own way, regardless mm-hmm. of their gender. I definitely felt it, but it was never a driving force for me. And, like, even as I raise money, it's, like, all about the people yeah. and that person's values than it is about their gender because I think I think both men and I mean people are people you know everyone has different values so to find partners whether they're your boss your investor your teammates that have aligned values I think is the most important thing um yeah so in terms of I guess takeaways from these first two (laughs) critical steps of into the gloss um (laughs) as well as spring I mean, what, what, what were you taking from those two seeming, they sound like pretty different experiences um, as you entered into your third sort of uh, phase out of way. Yeah. So Into the Gloss was really eye-opening from a community perspective. There is something very real there, like in the comment section, moderating the discuss areas. Like that to me was like, wow, there's a powerful thing happening here with like community, not just the storytelling or the editorial or the partnerships or the features. It was like... There is an underbelly of the internet here that is, like, hungry to engage. And eventually the hypothesis is hungry to shop, and they figured that out with Glossier. So um, where with Spring, you know, it was Instagram. I mean, truthfully, a lot of our original UX and UI team from Spring is now at Instagram shop, which is really cool to see, like, Mm. because I know that team so well and did, you know, daily stand-ups with them when I was at Spring. To see what they're able to bring live at Instagram shop now is, like, very cool and rewarding. Because the reality is that getting people to download an app is a very difficult thing. Mm. Um, And even when Spring launched web many years after our initial launch on mobile, you know, that's ultimately where we ended up seeing most of the traffic from a purchasing perspective. So it was was less community-driven at Spring. It was actually really product and conversion-focused. And that's... That's where, because of the talent that they brought into that team on every single level, I was able to start to dig into consumer insights and consumer behavior and understand the funnel and a little bit of paid marketing and, like, why someone could find something in one place or word of mouth through a friend. And then what actually got them to convert uh, was so fascinating. And then once they converted, what was that experience like? What was the customer service experience? Like, how did they continue to come back? The concept of repeat purchasing or, you know, it was just that entire ecosystem I really had never thought about before because I thought I just wanted to be in fashion and editorial when I came to New York. And to kind of understand that consumer journey is something that I hold with me to this day. And I think that if I didn't work at a tech company and a software company with primarily engineers, my thinking and logic would be very, very different than it is today. Yeah, I agree with that. I was a product manager before um, school, so I definitely agree working with developers (laughs) and tech people is different. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, when I first joined the team, so Era Era brought me on, um, and it was me, her, and then, like, one other kind of, like, chief of staff guy named Scott, Mm -hmm. who I adore, and then everyone else was an engineer. Um, and male. So I was kind of like this new creature on the ship. Like I would come in and I'd pop over to their desk and like, I don't know if you watch Silicon Valley at all, it's, it was very similar. In fact, one of the characters that Martin Starr plays is like 
to the T, one of our first engineers that we had who came from Chartbeat. And, like, it was it was so much fun. And I think we all kind of rocked each other's world because these guys were not thinking about shopping yeah. but creating a shopping app. And all I was doing was thinking about shopping but not actually building it. So, you know, I think as you build teams and, and bring talent together, like, when you can get that and everybody is, like, on the same page but comes from such different places of thinking, that's when, like, really cool stuff can happen. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I know after spring, you kind of went on to Away um, and were their head of partnerships, I believe. Yeah, I was head of partnerships there. Um, can you talk about that experience and what that was like, especially, you know, they have had such a kind of huge rise, um, what that looked like? Yeah, so it was it was great. Um, when I first met Jen and Steph, it was one of those things where they, like, hired me in the meeting. Like, it was, like, one of those same oh, wow. day. Like, <laughs> let's just go. I mean, there was only, like, eight or ten people on yeah. the team at the time. Um, and I had actually left Spring on, like, really good terms, was kind of just ready to, like, go in-house and actually work on a brand. And yeah. I had done some more consulting work for Tamar Mellon, who was the founder of Jimmy Choo. Um, She's unbelievable. And to, like, build and launch a brand into the world with her, given her expertise on branding from, like, the 90s and 2000s was was pretty amazing. Um, But I did not want to move to L.A. at the time. (laughs) So as much as it was fun to work with her. So I came back to New York, met Jen and Steph, and it was one of those things where I was like, let's – I get this vision. Like, let's go. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean – that feeling when you're an early person at a startup, you're just kind of doing it all. And to be able to have such a high touch on everything from building out the influencer program, you know, working on social with that team, doing partnerships. We did nine partnerships when I was there. Um, And like every level of partnerships and to see what actually made an impact on like the business side Mm -hmm. and the conversion side versus an impact on the storytelling and growth side or the brand alignment side. So, um, you know, not sexy stuff. Like, social giveaways and sweepstakes and like the actual nitty-gritty stuff that grows your email list and consumer base and those are the people that ultimately convert versus like the amazing stuff like NBA and Dwayne Wade and Rashida Jones and you know working with Madewell's team was so incredible and I'm still in touch like it was a really amazing opportunity um, to partner with people who were excited to get into the travel category and we built a really strong team. I was actually able to hire someone that I worked with at Spring on my team. Um, I'm still very close with a lot of the people who are on our early team there. And um, a couple of them are on my team now, which is really oh, wow. exciting for my business. I have a handful of um, team members who are early uh, white people. So, yeah, and I think from a growth standpoint, I mean, by the time I left, I think there were over 100 people. Wow. So. For that to happen that quickly on the consumer side is pretty rare. As you know, on the tech side, it's like, you know, software companies, you can just keep throwing engineers at it. But um, I've never worked at a consumer company that has grown and scaled that quickly. I remember um, when that all happened and it just seemed, I mean, one, having them come from Warby seemed like a huge boost of credit for them. But then kind of it just grew so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what they did so brilliantly across so many different channels was tell the narrative that, like, travel is a part of your self-identity. I think for any of these consumer companies, and more so than ever, like, product is table stakes. Like, you need to offer the best product that you can and do it in a way that's sustainable, innovative, et cetera. Um, But anyone with the right background can make great product. It's about translating that story to a customer and how they see themselves and hitting them at multiple touch points. So, like, it might be a partnership or it might be an influencer or it might be your friend's mom. Like, you have to think about the whole funnel of, like, how someone decides that, like, oh, I really like this product 
And I want this to be part of who I am, especially like that behavior. It's like you're physically walking around with a bag, right? Yeah. That's like a huge part of your identity. And it means you're standing for something. Um, yeah. So it was it was cool to be a part of that movement because when we first launched, I mean, there were a number of other brands in the category. There was yeah. Raiden, there was Blue Smart. Um, none of them are around anymore. And, you know, part of that is like totally irrelevant of marketing. It has to do with supply chain. It's like laws change. If you have literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of inventory with batteries built into the suitcase that you can't sell anymore, like that's a huge supply chain issue. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm so grateful for my my time at Away because I met really talented people. Clearly, I hired a couple of them now, yeah. which I love working with them. Um, and I, I learned a lot about supply chain. I mean, I truly like boats from places and fast ferries and getting <laughs> things on time and working with you know, warehouses, even as I go through my warehouse process right now, I'm very excited that we're going to be working with the warehouse we're working with, but you just learn so much. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of operational pieces to these businesses that um, were really new for me at the time. So I'm grateful to have learned from, from them there. Yeah. You know, I'll say uh, as somebody who is extremely risk averse myself, (laughs) um, I'm just like so impressed to hear like, just like hopping from startup to startup and just how hands-on and how much learning you do just through these like trials by fire where it's like, hey, figure out how to do this thing, figure out how to do this. Yeah. Um, so that is super cool. What um but I wanna I wanna ask a little bit more about like what you what, what this like head of head of partnerships means and like yeah. with the rise of kind of like that that influencer marketing and kind of like how how that plays into your strategy in terms of telling those stories, like figuring out who to target, who to speak, who to speak to. Um, were there any like was there like a sales side involved in that for you? Like were you doing the outreach and, and, and setting up all those meetings and everything? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So um, I was really lucky at a way because especially given their background to your point of like them coming from Warby, they really empowered brand and they knew how powerful that working with the right people could be to position this brand in the place that it needed to. And even as I think about it now with my company, as I build out like a partnerships roadmap and goals, I think year one, it's so important that you collaborate and work with people that are going to stand for something that you want your brand to stand for. So I think of partnerships more as collaborations, totally separate ecosystem as influencer. Um, And it's tough because people interchange these worlds. Like the word partner can mean anything. It could be a person. It could be a brand. It could be a a space, whatever it is. So um, I think as you're testing something as a new company, it's important to have a, def- a number of different partnerships with different goals. Um, you know, transparently, the goal wasn't necessarily to sell the collaboration suitcase. It was mm. to sell more Navy suitcases. So it was really focused. My KPIs were really focused on, like, halo effect is what we called it. Mm. So, like, acquire new eyeballs, get new people excited. It's funny. Suitcases are a weird one because you you wouldn't think someone wanted to, like, collect them all or like get all yeah. of these things but we were seeing people tweeting being like I have a whole family of these suitcases and I have the Madewell one and this one and you know it was it was cool to see people get like excited about yeah. collecting them um, I don't know if anybody's ever felt that way about a suitcase before so that was a huge part of the partnerships roadmap um, but like yeah I mean we we're very mindful of sales like I'm very lucky to work closely with data teams and see what happens like it's no mystery, especially at this time. It's it's changed a lot now from an acquisition perspective. But, like, I've always sat very closely to the paid marketing teams and the growth teams because it's a huge – I mean, as you build out your roadmap three, four years from now, the partners you look to, it's like, where will your customers be then? Who will you acquire? Like, it's just – as you've known, it's grown so much. So mm-hmm. what might have worked day 90 is not going to work year three. Yeah. Um, on the influencer side, I could talk about this for a while because I've, I've – I, 
it's been cool even at Into the Gloss, like having like baby Carly Gloss come in and be interviewed <laughs> or like early days of Man Repeller. Like yeah. it's been so interesting to see even at spring when we launched spring, we did a really awesome campaign um, that was Instagram based. But, you know, we made these sweatshirts with my fr- actually my best friend from NYU had this hoodie company. We had custom sweatshirts made. Everyone wanted them. This was like before the like drops of all this stuff. But um, you know, you could call up Leandra and be like, hey, we're going to take a photo in the street and, like, shoot it. And now for all these influencers, like, that'll be $20,000 a post. Yeah. And here are the regulations. <laughs> and, you know, I can't knock it because I think it's so – I mean, these girls and, and men, these people work hard. Like, yeah. I think so often social both as a job internally. Like, I, I think the social marketing manager does not get enough credit. Like, founders and leaders at these companies need to understand that this is one of the core channels that their audience is engaging with the brand on in real time. And like, it's almost like a content editor role. Like this isn't just social media managing. And I think so often, you know, young people come in, they're like, oh, this person's doing social, but like, it's important. Like it's probably more important than email in some ways, you know, depending on your business. So um, building out these influencer programs, whether it's at an Outdoor Voices or at Away, totally depends on the goals. So some of them are way more formula-based in the sense where it's like, okay, this person's reach is X and Mm -hmm. a suitcase cost Y, so, Mm -hmm. like, we're going to send them Z or not send them Z. And, you know, you make an exchange and there's a requirement um, depending on that person. I think it used to be way more transactional. You know, as I build my business now, I think we'll test into some of that. But for me, it's, like, 100% about community. I think you gain so much from building an actual community that you have real relationships with. And, like, yes, you can DM someone and never meet them, and they post something, and it's exciting, and you build that relationship digitally. But the power of having, like, a real interaction, and I think Outdoor Voices has done this so well with all their physical events and bringing people together and doing things, like, there's nothing to replace it, and those people continue to show up for the brand they become ambassadors for your brand in, in a way that actually isn't about the product but about the values. Yeah. Um, so I think depending on your goals as a business, like you come up with different strategies for partnerships and influencer that ladder up to those goals. And yeah. I think, you know, with a way from a growth perspective, like seeding um, product with certain people was really powerful mm-hmm. um, where, you know, that was years ago. You know, working with a macro influencer who has millions of followers is just – you're not going to see the impact it used to give you. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I'm, I'm really going to. Sh- I'm really, really showing my hand here. Um, I Masa is like a marketing person. I I am here like for exposition to like ask the dumb questions that I love maybe it. the layperson won't understand. What um, so so when you're when you're you know you're 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 ha- you're establishing all these partnerships, you have all these different channels that you're marketing your products to. You're telling your stories through. How do you know which ones are are like working? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm sure there's like the, there's like a whole topic devoted to this, but like knowing like, yeah, well, this person is you know partnering with this group or this mm. person directly drove X sales yes. or was was this you know, had this ROI? Yes, metrics. Metrics. <laughs> attribution. Yes, attribution. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> The answer is that it's complicated. Um, (laughs) So there are some campaigns that you can do as a brand where it's very clear. It's like a one-to-one ratio. It's like we gifted this person. They used this link. They sold this much because X people used code at checkout. Um, And you're still going to like the attribution. They're still a little fuzzy because someone could discover it through someone and come back like seven months later and purchase it. And like the tracking is a little wonky depending on how you're tracking it. But there are best practices and things that you can do to very like – very specifically track where someone's coming from. Um, 
However, there's a lot of things like community-driven stuff, events, word of mouth, text. I mean, there's so many things. People post stuff all the time and don't tag things, and then conversations happen in DM. Like, there, it's the way that if you were, let's say you're an employee and you wanted to prove that your strategy is working, screenshots or conversations are very powerful, you know, and it's being on it and seeing that these people are sharing or posting, whether it's one-to-one with friends or um, in an email someone sends you with all this exciting feedback. It's like, it's it's really qualitative and it makes it very difficult. Um, you know, and then there's obviously sales metrics. You can work with your, like I've always worked with our data teams to be like, okay, we're running this campaign or seeding this much stuff. Can we look at like how many, if they're not going through a trackable link, how can we view a certain time window in our, you know, Google Analytics or whatnot to see what the impact is on the business? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it just goes back to like the culture of like, are you do, are you with a team that's like super brand driven? And they're like, you know what? I don't really care that I don't know how many things I sold from this. Like we get that this is powerful and this mm-hmm. person is speaking to it. Um, and then I've definitely worked with teams where it's like, well, we're never going to send another product if we have no idea, like, what our actual value is from this. Yeah. Um, it, it could be almost like a, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts thing. Like, just having that ecosystem yes. in itself is valuable. I know, like, my favorite ads right now are yeah. the ones on the subway. Yeah. Like, when you just see the kind of series of ads for one brand or another. For sure. Um, but if I saw something like that and then I went and went, oh, yeah, maybe I will give this a try, I feel like that'd be really tough to yes. be like, oh, that worked. A lot of those have, like, unique codes or, like, unique links on the thing, though. So they still yeah. try to yes. they I'm try. Sure, I'm sure soon they'll be, like, yes. recognizing my face and knowing <laughs> I made eye contact totally. with the ad. Yeah. And then, yeah. It's already happening. I hate oh, to bring it to you. Fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, those are traditionally more of the, the paid teams, so, like, the yeah. out-of-home buys. Yeah. Um, but I think this is why it actually is so important for paid and, like, more brand marketing teams to sit together because you want – that interaction with the brand to be holistic. So if you are sitting on the subway twiddling your thumbs and looking up and then like 10 weeks later you do see a friend of a friend with it, you know, it's like we have to think about these things holistically Mm -hmm. as we share the message and the mission of of the company and brand. They can't be siloed. I have one final question on Away, which is did you work on the Minions partnership? I did, yes, (laughs) yes. I like loved that. I thought that was so cute. I'm glad you did. I actually, the the person I worked with most closely on is now on my team for Crown Affair, which is exciting. Um, Yes, lots of yellow suitcases. We launched that before we launched Kids, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I always thought was kind of interesting. I was like, I feel like we should time this when there's small suitcases. But you know what? I see them all over the airport. Not as much as the the traditional core colors, but... um, I'll see one, and people get super Henry's happy. just laughing at I didn't know yeah. about this. This is, like, really funny. Yeah. There's, like, yeah. these bright yellow suitcases. Yeah. Adults love Minions. Uh, I don't know what minions. it is, but, yeah. I actually sent a Minion gift this morning. I didn't mean to. <laughs> My friend was, like, asking me. It was a little, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that one, it was super popular and powerful, and mm-hmm. I think from, right, this is brand marketing marrying perfectly with yeah. awareness because a ton of, we got a ton of new customers because yeah. people who were, obsessed with They're minions. Like, I don't care about a way, but yeah, I Yeah, they love were like, minions. I don't know what the suitcase company is, but minions are the coolest. Yeah. So we had all these people get excited and introduced to the brand and they're like oh wait this is actually a really good product yeah. you know and and engage with us that way yeah. so but you're right the other day I saw this Instagram post I think on Away's page and it was like we just sold out of our newest collection and I was like how I imagine like I mean I just this is, tells a lot about me but threw away a 30 year old suitcase <laughs> and I'm like aren't everyone isn't everyone keeping their suitcases for 30 years yeah. how could anyone need one and like but I guess people do or they collect them or something yeah yeah I also think like and this is nothing with the way but the whole sold out thing I mean people have been 
Oh, I see. You never know inventory numbers. Yeah, I have a we have a shoe <laughs> store near my apartment that has been having a closing out sale for yeah. the last year since I've lived there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's you incredible. can sell out of something if you only have ten of them real fast. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, well I guess or moving on to kind of the next big thing for you. I know you started your own company, Levitate. Um, yeah. What drove that and you deciding to kind of go out on your own? Yeah. So after working at OA, which was really fun and, and fast-paced, I had a couple opportunities with friends who have been in the direct-to-consumer space to work on their businesses. And that continued to come up while I was working at OA. Like, I get people reaching out to me from other companies asking about partnerships or how to do it or would you help us with this thing? And um that the first one which I mentioned earlier was Outdoor Voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend uh, who is still a very very good friend who I actually worked with on launching Spring. She was at the PR company Daris, and she had just moved in house at Outdoor Voices, and they were trying to figure out how to scale and grow their marketing team, or at least put structure around it in the way that we had with Away with partnerships and influencer and. I um, met with her and their director of marketing, who's also a very good friend. She's now at Daily Harvest. And I was like, this team's amazing, but I'm not moving to Austin. So, like, let's figure out how to make this a scope of work or a consulting agreement. And what started as a three-month project became a two-year client. Um, And they've been amazing. I mean, Tyler, their founder, has such an incredible vision and is on a mission. And you feel it. Like, that team has been there for years, those people – live and breathe doing things and the brand is real like you you're in it and you feel it and I think that was so cool so to figure out how to grow that awareness um because sometimes while grassroots is the the grassroots marketing I think is is the core of everything that I've done and what I do but there is a time and place where you raise a certain amount of money and you grow a team and you're like I gotta actually like get this to people who like aren't in my ecosystem or maybe I can't reach them from a grassroots standpoint so to be able to build out the influencer and ambassador and celebrity program for them over the last two years has been incredible. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with a few other brands too. Um, Harry's, I worked with them on launching their women's line Flamingo, um, which has been really great. It's a little over a year and a half old now, which is crazy. And you see them in Target. And they I think they just hit over a million customers, which oh. is amazing in, in a year. Um to work with Jeff and Andy, I mean, namely Jeff, is he is a remarkable leader. And what they've done with that business is incredible. Also a place where, like, people stay and really are a part of it, um, which I love. And, again, like, so different, right? Like, they've worked on men's for so long. And the men's, like, the headspace of a male consumer is very different than women. So to be able to come in and sit with that team and think about how we go to market and launch in the world was it, it's much more I mean it's a much more competitive space women's beauty and personal care so that was awesome um, worked with the wing on a couple of projects as well as they another favorite <laughs> yeah I know they're they're amazing and um, you know this goes back to like work at do good work and work at good places because every single one of these things that I'm telling you guys started from spring mm. um, like Alex Covington who's brand director at the at the wing she was one of their first hires she worked at an agency called Team Epiphany, which we did a ton of work with at Spring. And, like, when she went to the wing, it was like, we oh, we just kept in touch, you yeah. know? And when they were launching retail, um, they were like, how do we go to market with this? You know, they, they're thinking about physical spaces. They're thinking about membership. They're not thinking about how people connect to the brand, yeah. even if they're not a member and live in Michigan or you know what it is and wherever it is where they might not have a location. So 
um, to be able to problem solve with them around that was so cool. And actually, their head of retail just went to away. So it's all very like an ecosystem. Incestuous. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like good people, man. You just keep, you want to keep working with, yeah. with people. Um, it's surprising how much of this, I mean, Spring sounds like it was such a good launching pad, just their springboard, if you will. Yeah. No, I know. I know you had to. I know. Um, they should have low-key just been a recruiting company. To this day, the best team I've worked with in mm. my life. And, and one of our advisors for Crown Affair, my new business, came from there, who is Truly the smartest person I've ever worked with. Um, he is a critical thinker who loves Mark. It's just rare to find that kind of talent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if anyone's hiring, look at, like, OG Spring people from, like, 2013, 2014. <laughs> it's the most talented group. Wow. So this, I mean, starting your own thing, I mean, so it sounds like you you had, like, a pretty solid network, especially through some of uh, your partnerships role, um, Spring as well. Um, but, like... What's that transition like going into more of like, this sounds more like you're going to like B2B sales and marketing rather than like to the consumer for like kind of the first time. With Levitate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, totally. Um, it's interesting because like, you know, I, I love talking about consulting. And if anybody wants to talk about this, literally tweet or Instagram me because it's it's a it's a difficult thing to navigate, actually. There's not like a, a toolkit that's like, here's how you start an LLC and like make sure you get this accountant and like. How do you balance taking in new clients or what do you say no to? And and truthfully, I knew that I wasn't going to do this forever. Like, I started to feel after two years of doing it, I was like, I don't really want to grow an agency. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think I want to do this. So for me, it was a really interesting balance of, like, you know, bringing on the right clients at the right time, rolling off others, making sure I had enough bandwidth, making sure I had the right team. Like, actually, a lot of part of – a huge part of all my contracts was that I could actually hire people in-house. Mm. So both at Flamingo and OV, we were able to, like, obviously very collaboratively with their leadership team in-house, but be like, okay, we actually need a new role for this thing. So, Mm -hmm. like, let's find that person, which allowed me to grow and move on to new things. So it was a little bit – I think on one hand, a lot of companies find that refreshing because agencies traditionally can feel very separated or, like, they're holding on to their relationships and, like, they're the kind of this, like, separate thing where I was very integrated into Mm -hmm. these companies – um, but still had the right amount of distance where it was, like, clear what my scope of work was. But, yeah, I mean, there, there's the B2B element there. But ultimately, still, like, on the day-to-day thinking about the work I was doing was still, you know, to the customer. So um, so kind of on the heels of Levitator, maybe while, maybe you can talk about yeah. this, kind of you came to your own uh, D2C brand, which feels really uh, apropos, kind of yeah. being like, now I'm going to do what you guys have all been doing. Um, yeah. How did you get there? How did that happen? Yeah, so um, I've been working on Crown Affair, which is the name of my new company, which we're launching in the new year. Uh, for Since I've basically been working on Levitate, I'd say a couple months after I started Levitate, I started working on developing hair care products. Okay. Um, and it started because I was going to Austin quite often for work with Outdoor Voices and a number of the girls on the team would ask me what I was doing to my hair. Um, and also, like, friends in New York. Like, honestly, some of the most incredible accomplished women who can do anything in my eyes were, like, I don't know what to do totally with my hair. hair. Yeah, they were like, I, I need your routine. So it started as an email. It became a Google Doc. It was like the 16 things that I like did. Not you put your hair care routine into a Google yeah, Doc. Wow. Yeah, I put my hair care routine into a Google Doc. Um, and it was like, this is the silk pillow I use, and this is the <laughs> hairbrush I use, and I like these two shampoos in this time of day. I, so I grew up, my skin was never like consistent, so mm-hmm. I really put a lot of time and energy into taking care of my hair 
which is uncommon. Most people have, like, the 10-step Korean skincare, skincare routine. Yeah. And, you know, there's that meme that's like, a lot of you have been asking about my skincare routine. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, that. Yeah, that's actually me with hair care. I would never put that on the internet, though, <laughs> FYI. Or maybe I will one day, so I shouldn't say anything yet. But, yeah, it was um, – it started that way. It was, like, super organic and – the prob- two things kind of like light bulb for me. One was that um, a lot of the products I were, was recommending were mm. super, like, they're just prohibitively expensive. Mm. Um, the hairbrush that I love and swear by is a $200 brush. Mason Pearson? Yes, the Mason Pearson yeah. brush. You know it. And, yes. like, that's cool if you're, like, down to spend money on brush because you, like, care about your hair. But for a lot of people, it's, like, that's a lot of money for yeah. a hairbrush. Um, and the other thing that I realized from a—and this, com- this is, like, now all of the pieces of the consumer puzzle coming together, which is— there's not a ton of guidance on hair care out no. there. It's very it's very driven by professional and hairstylist or celebrity, which is kind of what early into the gloss was yes. I was saying. It was like, get Reese Witherspoon's red carpet look. And it's like, okay, I don't know how to do this. I'm glad you interviewed her professional yeah. makeup artist, but, like, I don't really know what to do. And hair care still to this day is very, like, get Chrissy Teigen's ponytail at Coachella with Jen Atkin, which, like, I love. Yeah. And I totally want to try that ponytail on a weekend when I'm, like, here to watch YouTube videos. But, like, Definitely. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know yeah. you as well. This is my yeah. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, speaking my language. Hey, you have great hair, Henry. It's oh, amazing. <laughs> thank you. I got to say also to the <laughs> listeners out there, Diana's hair, I can attest, it looks fantastic. <laughs> Google I, this is great radio. Yeah. <laughs> Google Diana Cohen hair. Or I don't know if that. You two ends. Should, yeah. Two ends. Two ends. Yeah. Um, You'll probably get Crown Affair, so you know, be sure to subscribe for that yeah, as well. Thank you. Yes. No. I mean, I love a good. I love a good interview over without actually seeing me. It's, yeah. it's more honestly. I love talking about hair, and um, it just became very clear that there wasn't a ton of guidance. Yeah. And, and as um, skin and color cosmetics have been democratized in such a huge way the last few years. I don't think hair care has. And, um, you know, I'm just one woman with my own hair care story. But I think what I'm most excited about with Crown Affair is, like, not only being able to offer all of my favorite products that I love at a much more accessible price point and, like, still beautifully designed and made in Italy Mm -hmm. and Switzerland and Japan and, like, work with all these family businesses that have been doing this and offer it at a much more accessible price point, but also just create this community. Um, We have a series on the site called Good People where we're, like, interviewing. I mean, Era's on there, which is great. You know, she never talks about her hair. She's, Mm -hmm. like, one of the most badass marketing women ever. (laughs) But to be able to, like, sit down and shoot her at her house in Malibu Mm -hmm. and be like, yo, let's talk about your hair and how it's actually a huge part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And how did it change after you had kids? And what are you using? And, you know, it's, yeah, all of these people might be using a couple products from Crown Affair, but it's also just the whole routine and and ritual for them. Um, And even, like... I had a really cool conversation with one of the lead animators at Pixar mm-hmm. who works on hair. Um, and it, For the characters? For the characters. Oh, wow. Interesting. He's been there for over 10 years. His name is Michael Fredrickson. Hi, guy. Hi, what's <laughs> up? You're my fave. Um, and we talked for like two and a half hours about hair um, and identity and just how it can totally change the way that you move through the world and whether it's um, – you know, a character like Sully from Monsters, Inc., mm-hmm. who's a, a groom character who, like, you know, it's such a huge part of how he he moves in his body versus, like, showing hair on up and, like, aging through the years and, mm-hmm. like, what that looks like. Or even working on, like, Inside Out and, like, these characters that are, like, shapes, right? Like, mm-hmm. they don't have hair, but, like, Disgust looks like a broccoli and Sadness <laughs> looks like a teardrop. And, like, how hair, even for him, he wears a hat most days mm-hmm. and it's, like... 
that's actually a huge part of his identity too. So, you know, we're working with incredible chemists. I'm so proud of this product, like the fragrance house. Like we're working, I'm so proud of the product, but I also think what we're going to be able to do from a storytelling and community perspective will Mm -hmm. hopefully be really powerful. Um, And it's something I've been sitting on and like, you know, have been sitting on basically for the last two years working on this and perfecting the product and like, I'm so excited to bring it into the world now. And it was tough because I, I love what I do with Levitate and working with clients. Like, the reason I called it Levitate, I don't know if you guys have seen The Defiant Ones, that documentary with mm-hmm. Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. You guys haven't seen that HBO no. documentary? No. Oh, <laughs> whoa. Let's I mean, leave right now and watch it. <laughs> um, there's a quote in there where Jimmy Iovine is talking about, uh, or no, it's Eminem, is talking about the relationship between Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. And he says, Dr. Dre is the innovator and Jimmy's the levitator. Mm. And I loved it. I wrote it down. I was actually working at Away at the time when I watched the documentary. And I was just like, I love the concept of, like, levitating people. Like, that is what lights me up. Like, it's not my idea. Like, even to this day, it's so funny. It's so hard sometimes working on Crown Affair. And I don't think people talk about the hard parts of this, too. And it's been really amazing. But, like, sometimes it's really hard when it's your own thing. You Mm. know, it's like you're really critical or you're like you live with yourself all the time in yeah. your head so it's so much easier to have someone tell me their idea and like let's just ideate for the next two hours and like have fun with this and make intros and and have cool things happen so for me it was really hard to let go and there were a lot of cool opportunities um for levitate and like sometimes people are like why didn't you continue to grow it like you have such good clients like but I also just kind of hit a point where I was like I think I'm ready to like do this on my own and um in, in a category that I'm so personally passionate about and hair care has been such a ritual for me that I'm so excited to like take it back to the basics and storytelling and like yeah. create something that feels really different than what's out there right now. Yeah. I really resonated with so much of what you said. I feel like Into the Glass helped me take agency over my skin, but I still am often like, I have no idea what to do with my hair. You have awesome hair, Well, that's too. why I cut it short, because I was like, oh, it's easy. I'll just wake up <laughs> while out of bed. That's not true. That's, but. Why, that's why I keep mine short, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the main reason. I can tell. You have, like, The main reason. You have, like, oh. type... Oh, the main reason. Look at guys' puns left and right. It's awful. You have, like, type one hair. Guys, sorry. I know you can't see this right now. We're going to have to do a little lineup of all of our hair. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a super cool category that I think... Um, I, like, can't wait to – I just want to do this forever. It's also, though, I guess my question – I have some questions around kind of why now because you have Tracy Ellis Ross with Pattern Beauty. You have Virtue? Virtue, yeah. Verb, Living. There's, like – it feels like all of a sudden all these hair care brands showed up. Um, Yeah. So uh, kind of what do you think about that? How do you feel like maybe Crown Affair will be a little bit different? Yeah. No, it's a great question. So our core products are really tool-based. We do have one soft good. So we have one formula-based product, which is a hair oil. I am only making things because I want them to exist in the world. Like, this is not another hair care brand where you're like, why are there 12 shampoos and what are the difference between these 12 shampoos? Um, The hair oil specifically, I could not find a hair oil that didn't have this ingredient called cyclopentasiloxane in it, which is, like, the main ingredient in, like, Moroccan oil and a number of these companies who Mm -hmm. I won't name. And it's basically a silicone that coats your hair and makes your hair feel really soft, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually penetrate the strand and hydrate it. Um, And clean, quote, clean beauty is something we've seen in skincare a lot. And I think um, the other side of the hair care space is, like, all natural whole foods vibe. And I have, like, type 2B hair, so if I put coconut oil or a natural oil on my hair, I look like my hair's wet. Mm. So, like, the totally natural space doesn't actually work from an efficacy perspective. And I think what Drunk Elephant has done so well is they've educated their customer that, like, 
not all chemicals are bad. They're just not all created equal. Yeah. So I think from a formula perspective with Crown Affair, we have a really incredible opportunity to offer products that are clean and better for you and actually work. Um, but they're still chemical. You know, yeah. it's like they're chemicals and they work. But let's like educate people and have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you but know, you, sorry, you mentioned it's mostly tools. It's mostly tools right now. Okay. So we're launching with the brush, oh. um, which has been a journey. We ordered a lot of mason pears and brushes and like reverse engineered, dissected to get it. We worked for the brush in particular. We've worked the last two years with a family in Italy. So I'm really excited to take a lot of my favorites and offer them at a much better price point. Yeah. Um, and are you yeah. planning to expand that into like shampoos? I mean, like what you just said yeah. was, <laughs> I picture you like in a lab with like beakers and like, <laughs> and, like yeah. trying to develop these shampoos. Yeah. Are, are, are you guys planning on, on doing something like that as well? Yeah. So my, my business partner is a bioengineer and chemist. So wow. none of this is me. I mean, I've learned so much and, and this has been a huge part of, of my journey too, just being like, I can't believe I was using that for so long. This actually has been drying out my hair or whatever it is. So um, yes, uh, pro tip, if you're going to make formulas, find a business partner who's a chemist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we're, we're developing... <laughs> We have seven other products in development right now, from a hair mask to a dry shampoo wow. that's actually good for your scalp. Yeah. Um, and things that, like, I really just think the customer deserves better than what is out there. There are some really amazing products, though. Like, you know, Living Proof, um, one of our advisors was one of their early employees on the digital side. And, like, they're, they make really good product. Like, they, they spent so much money on designing a molecule that is not what these things are. So, mm-hmm. like, there's really good product out there, but I think... Um, you know, it's a, it's a brand that's very driven by science. The mm-hmm. fragrance is specific. So for us, it's like I'm trying to take a lot of what I love from some of the more, like, luxury brands yeah. and bringing them into this because Orbe is amazing. Like, the yeah. scent is addictive, you know? So it's like how do we recreate that? And, like, the problem with a lot of drugstore products is, like, they're kind of the same, actually, of what mm-hmm. a lot is out there. But, like, the scent is really off or, like, the te- it just – I think there's a huge opportunity in this space to create something that, like, I personally – was realizing that there were there was feedback and gaps in the product that I was using. Yeah, and I'll oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was I was gonna say I, I mean I yeah. use whatever shampoo yeah. my girlfriend buys. Yep. Um, so maybe it'll be your special Crown Affair shampoo yes. in the future. Yes, we're gonna get you a hairbrush. I can't wait to run a hairbrush through that hair. I, I have a comb. It's fine. Do you, we have combs as well. We actually have amazing combs um, that are handmade in Switzerland that wow. I love. They're really good. I'm so excited for The comb of your dreams. The comb of my dreams. It is the comb of my dreams. It looks beautiful. I like love looking. At it. That's so exciting. Um, when you started building Crown Affair, did you go back to a lot of those female or not female male founders <laughs> like um, that you'd worked for and kind of ask them about how they built their consumer businesses? Yeah. I mean, Jeff Rader from Harry's was one of the first person people I called and was like, so <laughs> doing this thing also in the hair space. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously hair and, and hair removal is very different than hair care on the top of your head. But he was one of the first phone calls I, I made just because um, – you know, what he's built with Harry's is, is incredible. Yeah. Um, and actually, my lead investor was one of his first investors in his seed round. So Was it Forerunner Ventures? Um, it was not Forerunner. Okay. <laughs> um, it is uh, a, a guy named Andrew Mitchell who's from Brand Foundry who's okay. incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd worked with Forerunner a number of times. That's what's so funny about all these um, different venture firms is you do overlap with them quite often but you sometimes get different leads on those on those accounts um depending on obviously if it's new york san francisco whatever it is so um yeah so i it's funny at the time i hadn't i hadn't signed the term sheet before i spoke to jeff but um yeah he's been super helpful and then 
I'm really proud of our investor group. We we just closed our round, actually. We raised 1.7. Wow. Um, is that your yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Is this a seed round? It's our seed round. Okay. Yeah. So it's we have a couple um, investors I'm really excited about. I, I mentioned Andrew. Um, Heidi Zach, who's the founder of Third Love. Jackie Johnson, who's the founder of Create and Cultivate. Um, Brian Spaley, who co-founded Bonobos and Trunk Club. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of other really great people that I'm so excited. I mean, I just... I am so lucky I get to wake up and do this and have these conversations with these people because they're all equally passionate about consumer or product or community and to be able to, like, you know, build something and have them believe in what our team is building and know that there is a larger vision is, like, it's so cool. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And do you kind of ultimately see Crown Affair as being both product, media, and kind of a community all, I guess, somewhat like uh, Glossier perhaps? Yeah, you know, I think... There's going to be so much learning because I, I, it's these are all lightning in a bottle, as you mentioned. Like some of these unicorns, like it takes time. Yeah. Like Rent the Runway has been around for ten years, yeah. you know. And like Jen is amazing. I actually spoke to her a couple of weeks ago at a uh, female founders fund event, and it was just like she's Jen from Rent the Runway came and spoke to us at um, Spring. We mm. used to do fireside chats there, and I remember this was like five years ago. Now she came in. I was the only, like, one of the only girls in the audience besides Era, and I was eating up every minute of what she was saying. And it's just like you look back, and like that business has evolved. And I, I you know, I think Emily and that team, like, you know, you just launch something and see how it goes yeah. and what it will be. And um, I don't have like grand plans to have this be that all of it because it might never be that because it's just such a different world now. But I think launching something into the world it's like you there I don't think that anything's separate anymore right mm-hmm. it's like influencer and relationships and customer and and IRL and we're seeing this a lot right now it's so funny I just went home for Thanksgiving to Florida and I was like walking around Miami and I saw like three Warby Parkers you know mm-hmm. and it's like they're there like they're physical and like I actually I went to the mall with my mom when I where I grew up in Boca and she was like oh we can go out this way and I was like I want to walk through the mall just to like <laughs> see what's here because in my brain it's like it's just seared in my brain all the high school stores yeah. you know what I mean and it's like four of four of the stores in the mall now are like smile direct clubs you know mm-hmm. and it's like there's now all these different businesses that didn't exist when we were growing up. So I think, like, the whole conversation of, like, direct-to-consumer, and we've said that word a number of – that yeah. concept a number of times, like, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It, these are just businesses and brands, you know? Yeah. It, it feels like there's a trend almost of you start digital, you start online – and then you, and then once, if you if you succeed in that, then you start building out to brick and mortar or to pop ups or yeah. what have you. Is that kind of like the the ultimate goal for some of these stores, or maybe not the goal, but at least I feel like I'm starting to see that. Yeah, I mean, there's been a hundred percent. I mean, there was a great article maybe a year and a half ago. I I can't remember where it was, but it was like uh, CAC, so cost acquisition mm-hmm. per customer is the new rent. <laughs> so as prices get higher on Facebook and Instagram, it's actually more affordable to acquire a customer in a physical retail store, mm-hmm. especially if you're not holding that much inventory. Like the away stores didn't, you can't have that many suitcases in those stores. So like most people would kind of come in, engage with the brand. Occasionally make a purchase on site, but most likely buy it online later. Um, so I think what started as potentially like marketing expenses are now <laughs> actual like revenue drivers. Um, and I think it's so important to have a physical space for people to come together. And, you know, we're not launching day one with a physical space for Crown Affair, but it is a huge part of our long term strategy um, because you can actually like get people together and like have conversations. And it's really different. There's definitely a limit to the online experience. Yeah. 
Well, with that, thank you so much for being here with us today. I feel like we learned so much. I know Henry <laughs> learned I, so much. I learned so much today. <laughs> <laughs> this is great, Diana. You were, you were fantastic. Thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to join us. Thank, thank you. you guys for having me. This was really fun. 